welcome to the second week of Season of Giveaways. You're listening to Post Credits with Gil Garcia, where we go beyond the final scene. Today I have a jam-packed show lined up for you. Not only are we reviewing the Chris Columbus, John Hughes holiday classic, Home Alone, but we are tackling Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and Home Alone 3. Now before we spend the holidays with Kevin McAllister and Alex Pruitt, Let me announce the winner of the first week of the season of giveaways. Congratulations to Charlene S., who entered via X or Twitter, if you call it. Thank you so much for following the show on Twitter and subscribing on YouTube. I really appreciate your support. I want to thank you so much for joining the community. We are growing and improving every week here on the show. I will be directly messaging you for details and how to give you your prize. Let me know which retailer you would like the gift card from. And once again... Congratulations and happy holidays to you and your family. If you didn't win, don't worry. We have two more weeks of giveaways planned, and today's special key phrase will come after my review of Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, so you guys want to listen out for that part of the show. For those of you who are first-time listeners, I'm doing three weeks of holiday giveaways. The first one just concluded, as you just heard, and you can win a $25 gift card of your own from any retailer of your choice. It could be Xbox, PlayStation, Amazon, Target, you name it. The rules of the contest are simple. You follow the show on Instagram or X. The username is PCWithGill, so just type that into the search bar. You'll see the logo pop up. Later in the episode, I'll provide you that key phrase, so listen out for that. And then once you hear the key phrase, share it on your Instagram, X, or both, and tag the show. You get one entry per social media platform, so that's a total opportunity of two entries per week. So if you post on Instagram and on X, that's two entries. The second week's contest will end on December 16th at midnight Pacific. I'll be sharing the name of the winner on next week's episode, and the process will run again during next week's Wonka review. Be sure to follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe on YouTube so you don't miss an episode as well. Without further ado, let's kick this thing off right with the film that started it all. The first of six, yes, six Home Alone films. This is Macaulay Culkin's Home Alone 1. All right, in Home Alone, an eight-year-old troublemaker mistakenly left home alone must defend his home against a pair of burglars on Christmas Eve. Home Alone is directed by Chris Columbus, famous for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and Mrs. Doubtfire. And it's written by John Hughes, who we covered his work previously on the show with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. He's also written The Breakfast Club and Uncle Buck. The film stars Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister, Joe Pesci as Harry, Daniel Stern as Marv, Catherine O'Hara as Kate McAllister, and John Hurd as Peter McAllister. The history of this film with families all across the globe for Christmas is overwhelming. People from all walks of life come together for the holidays and watch this movie in particular, as well as a subsequent sequel. Home Alone has been a staple of Christmas time since its inception in 1990. At the time of this film's release, I was only about one years old, but every year since, I've always caught this movie on television and home video. And you'd think, after 33 years, that the movie would lose its effect or its magic. But you know, sometimes a movie will come along that just transcends the test of time and logic. Home Alone is one of those transcendent films. Is it an Academy Award prestige film? No, of course not. But it has become a universally beloved Christmas classic because of the nostalgia and joy it brings people. It has a reputation for having some childhood wish fulfillment and shenanigans while also bringing home a heartfelt message. As we will see throughout the rest of the episode, the film franchise may lose its heart the further along it goes, but there's nothing short of childhood wonder and comedy in these movies. I remember vividly reenacting some of the stunts of this movie in my backyard, like jumping off the roof and stuff like that. Quoting lines from the fake movie within this movie called Angels with Filthy Souls. (laughs) And of course, trying on aftershave for the first time without shaving or having a beard. Spoiler alert, it didn't burn me like it does Kevin in the film. (laughs) He kind of overdid it on that scene, but kind of cute nonetheless. 
But much like Kevin McAllister, I was very young and impressionable to this movie. I often found myself imagining what a weekend without family would be like. Romping through the streets with my bike, eating snacks from the kitchen without limitations, jumping on the couches and beds like a WWF superstar. There are a lot of things that this movie holds near and dear to my heart that will always remind me of those simpler times. To me, I was Kevin McAllister. And living in a home with three sisters, a younger brother, and a couple uncles, and a grandpa that was always around, it felt like the McAllister home was as chaotic as my own. I saw a lot of parallels between my uncles and Uncle Frank, my little brother with Fuller. My older sisters were like buzz, kinda. (laughs) And this film just makes me appreciate all those moments of chaos with them. Those times where we disagreed and couldn't stand one another, to the quieter moments where we would gather around and play Yoshi's Island or the game of life. The Home Alone films will always be about family, my family, your family, and the neighbors we may not get along with. But before I get too emotional reminiscing about the people I love, I should really get to the review of this film itself and see if the memories and lessons hold up. In my review, I'm going to first go over the things I enjoyed about it, then we'll chase it down with a few negatives before I give you my final verdict. So right away, the movie is injected with holiday spirit. It's within the lifeblood of this film franchise. The iconic McAllister homestead and score from John Williams invites you in. Williams, who will be important when we get to Home Alone 3, was actually nominated for an Academy Award for this film's signature song, Somewhere in My Memory. The chaos of the McAllister family feels real. There are tensions brewing among cousins, brothers, sisters, aunts, and uncles, with each side character having their own unique personality and moment in the opening of the movie. It really fleshes out the world that they live in, and it makes you feel like you're a part of the McAllisters. Now, the McAllisters are actually going on vacation to see Peter's brother, who is Kevin's uncle, in Paris. My initial thought was, who wants to spend Christmas away from home in another country? Also... How much money would it cost Peter McAllister to fly 14 people to Paris during the holidays? To that effect, what does he do for a living? (laughs) Now, I did some digging, and apparently, according to the novelization of the Home Alone film franchise, Peter McAllister is a successful businessman and stock trader in Chicago, while Kate McAllister is a high fashion designer. The two incomes certainly help with the cost of the house and probably for the travel and the trip and stuff. But I was always wondering that as a kid. How does he have so much money? (laughs) Shortly after, we are introduced to the best character in the film for me. And that is Harry, played by Joe Pesci, the Academy Award winning actor. Around this time, Joe Pesci was known for his comedic work in the intense gangster dramas, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Casino. And in fact, Joe went on to win his only Oscar in 1990-1991, which is the same year that Home Alone came out, for his supporting role in Goodfellas. So this was a big year for him. Not only did he have a big blockbuster hit with Home Alone, but he also had an Academy Award winning role. To have an actor of his caliber at the height of his career portraying a bumbling idiot antagonist in a kid's movie was a major win for John Hughes and Chris Columbus. His presence gave this film a lot of weight and stakes since his tough guy New Yorker attitude was actually a threat to Kevin and the McAllister family. He shows a willingness to do whatever it takes to make some money by disguising himself as a patrol officer and casing the houses around the block. Pesci is wonderful in this movie, and the reputation he received from Goodfellas on account of his dirty mouth made his fake cursing a signature of the Harry character. And instead of cursing, he'll mumble audible language that sounds close to curse words instead of actually dropping an F-bomb or two. <laughs> and then we also have Daniel Stern, who is fantastic in this movie as well. Daniel Stern doesn't get a lot of love. He certainly made his presence known in the 90s with things like Rookie of the Year, Home Alone, and such. He was one of those major comedic character actors that would pop in every now and then and do a good job. And he does a good job in this film franchise. Now, the events of this whole franchise of movies revolves around one specific incident, and that is a cheese pizza. That's right. The kickoff to the entire film franchise happens in the scene in the kitchen when Kevin assaults Buzz for eating his cheese pizza. It causes the family to scramble around, they spill some drinks, they ruin their boarding passes, and even gets their unruly Uncle Frank to insult the child. Uncle Frank is a piece of shit. (laughs) 
Sorry for the language, but yes, Uncle Frank is a piece of shit. <laughs> and there's a huge reason why Macaulay Culkin is one of the greatest child actors in the history of cinema. It's because of his insane talent as a kid to invoke a sense of anger, resentment, nativity, and vulnerability all in the matter of minutes. In this one scene, you see him go through the gamut. He is embarrassed by Buzz. He hates him. He resents him. But at the same time, he feels responsible for what has happened to cause the family to turn on him. Kevin is a troublemaker for sure, but he's also highly provoked into being one. He's only sent to the attic because his shithead brother Buzz goaded him into a fight. Kevin's bad attitude is a direct reflection of the people around him. It's no wonder why he wishes they would all disappear, because they all treat him poorly. They all insult him. They call him le incompetent. <laughs> and that brings us to the next highlight of this movie for me. Catherine O'Hara as Kate McAllister. Now look, I know it's easy to point to Kate as the worst mother in the history of cinema, but I think Catherine O'Hara does a great job of getting us to empathize with this character's guilt and predicament. It's easy to overlook the fact that she left her child in an attic overnight while she and her family went to Paris because she's quick to atone for it. She goes through a lot in this movie just to try and get back to Kevin. I think that gives us the redeeming quality that we're looking for out of this character, and Catherine O'Hara really brings it. Her best scene in the movie comes from when she desperately begs a woman for a boarding pass back to America. She tries to bribe her with jewelry and cash. Catherine is heartbreakingly brilliant in this moment, appealing to the desperations of every mother that has to care for her child. Now is a good a time as any to bring this up because this past month, Macaulay Culkin was honored by the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce with his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. At the ceremony was his film mother, Catherine O'Hara. She actually was the person to present Macaulay with the star. In her speech, she cited the fact that Kate McAllister was an awful mother. She acknowledged it, saying, I not only left you home alone once, but twice. <laughs> It's great when they have some self-awareness about their roles, but still, Catherine O'Hara is super endearing, and you can tell she really loved playing Kate McAllister. Kevin and Kate, although they don't share a lot of screen time together in this movie, it's clear that Catherine and Macaulay cared a lot about these characters and for one another. And it's that wonderful rapport and chemistry that makes the finale to this film so powerful and so endearing. Now let's talk about the hijinks that ensues when Kevin is left alone and the reason why the film has been so successful with children across so many generations. This movie is loaded with childhood wish fulfillment. I mentioned my own at the top of the show as a result of it. From airsoft rifling sports figurines to eating a massive ice cream sundae while watching an R-rated film and going shopping at a grocery store all on your own, Home Alone allows children to live vicariously through Kevin's actions. When you're younger, you really do put yourself in his shoes. You want to watch bad movies unsupervised. You want to snow ski down the flight of stairs in your house. And you want to order your own cheese pizza. <laughs> it's these moments where Macaulay Culkin really imbues the spirit of childlike wonder. He really did a fantastic job of being charismatic, funny, and empathetic. But like most things in life, there is a cost to having freedom. Kevin's homesickness for his family is weighing on him as he discovers the threat of the wet bandits, Harry and Marv, inching closer to his home as they're burglarizing the whole neighborhood. Kevin learns he needs to defend himself and his home from these invaders in order to save Christmas and hope to see his family again. Those of you who listened to my podcast back in September, I did a month-long marathon called Saw Timber, where I reviewed all 10 Saw films. With each movie, I kept a list of my top three favorite traps. Well, guess what? Surprise! I'm bringing that segment back, baby. Here are my top three favorite Home Alone 1 traps. <laughs> Okay, so there are many videos you can watch on YouTube that capture the catastrophic pain that Marvin and Harry endure in this film, as well as the likelihood of death for each trap. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that here. Instead, I'm just highlighting three that either had me bust a gut laughing or those that I found incredibly clever and unique. Starting with the blowtorch. The blowtorch is incredibly simple. After branding his right hand on the doorknob of the McAllister's front door, Harry finally gets through from the other side, only to discover that he has tripped a wire that is directly pulling on the trigger of a blowtorch aimed directly at his skull. It takes Harry a couple seconds to realize what is happening, and he freaks out by throwing his head into a pile of snow to cool off. 
It's hilarious. It's brutal. And it will come back to pay off in the next film in a big way, too. I really like the blowtorch. It's simple and effective. Number two is the staircase paint cans. Another classic but goodie. The staircase paint can bit is amazing. The two burglars are unsuspecting of a paint can that's being hurled directly into their path on the staircase. One hits Marv, but Harry, relishing in Marv's pain, doesn't expect the second one to come in and knock him on his partner as well. (laughs) And also, this again, is another trap that will come in hugely in the sequel, so take note of that. And then the number one trap of Home Alone 1 is the nail. Yes, you know which one I'm talking about. (laughs) This trap has been used in countless horror films since, including A Quiet Place. The nail is hands down the most brutal trap in the movie, in my opinion. Marv keeps his head up as he climbs out of the basement and doesn't notice that his bare foot is headed straight into a nail that's pointing upwards. If there was gore added to the scene, it would make the film instantly R-rated. This is my clear favorite in the movie, and it can be hard to watch. Daniel Stern really sells the shit out of this trap with his scream, and I love it, dude. It is so loud and shrieking, it's hilarious. But yeah, the nail. That one's going to stick with you if you watch this movie. It's pretty bad. (laughs) Although most people say that the traps in this film is the star of the movie, I think what makes Home Alone special is the feeling of acceptance and necessity for family during the holidays. The resolution of this movie is incredibly powerful and uplifting. Kevin and Kate finally see each other as better people when they embrace at the end, learning to forgive one another for their fight, and knowing that family is the one important thing in this world that's worth having around. But that message gets impacted even more so with the reveal that Marley, he's the outcasted next-door neighbor who saved Kevin, he reconciles with his estranged son and granddaughter after having a spiritual heart-to-heart in the church with Kevin earlier in the film. Marley ends up being the true hero of the picture. He is the embodiment of what Kevin has to go through in order to get his family back. Through Marley and his actions towards the end of the film, Kevin becomes a much wiser person and realizes the error of his ways and how much he loves his family. Although Home Alone may be the perfect holiday film for you and your family, it has some issues with logic and reasoning. Major inefficiencies are abound when it comes to the adult characters in this movie. Nearly every single adult is an idiot. (laughs) The clerks at the grocery stores, the police officers when they first arrive at the McAllister's house, the pizza delivery guy, and the ones at the airport who offer no help whatsoever to Kate McAllister. This movie shares a lot of similar tropes of that of planes, trains, and automobiles, which we covered a couple weeks ago, which was also written by John Hughes. It even features a cameo or a small part in this movie for John Candy. It seems like Hughes kind of had a niche audience for his films, but it clearly has worked after all these years. I don't mind these lapses in logic personally, but they are worth mentioning and pointing out. I say you keep Home Alone in your holiday rotation and traditions because this movie gets a four and a half out of five. It has definitely gotten better with age and will live forever withstanding the test of time. Now, before we head on to Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and I know this episode is already getting a bit long, let me give you some filmmaking factoids behind the first Home Alone. The first factoid is a testament of how great of an actor Joe Pesci is and why he won that Academy Award that year. It's been documented that Joe Pesci deliberately avoided Macaulay Culkin on set because he wanted Culkin to think he was mean. This bit of method acting really allowed the two to play up on Kevin's fears and get Macaulay into character. Really good technique from a veteran actor on a younger, more impressionable child actor. This next one might actually be a bit emotional, so hold your tears. (laughs) This one is actually evident if you watch the Hollywood Walk of Fame ceremony video that I mentioned. But Catherine O'Hara revealed in 2014 that Macaulay Culkin still calls her mom whenever he sees her. The sweetness of this factoid stems from the fact that Macaulay Culkin has had a pretty difficult relationship with his parents and took to calling Catherine his mom well into his adult life because he truly appreciates her like the mother he never had. And you can see it in the video when he goes up to the stage to hug Catherine O'Hara before he gives his acceptance speech of the Star on the Walk of Fame. He actually does call her mom. You can hear it on the audio. It's really sweet and I 
dare you to try not to cry the next time you see the video of them from 2023. Now, the movie originally had more scenes of the family in Paris, but test audiences wanted to get back to Kevin. I think that that's a great call by the audiences and director Chris Columbus on cutting those scenes out. Even though I like the McAllisters, seeing more of them would have actually ruined the effect of seeing Kevin long for them, and it actually helped keep the fun energy focused on Kevin and what was going on in Chicago. And for the last factoid of Home Alone 1 is one that I alluded to earlier in the film. Joe Pesci was used to adding profanity to most of his scripts and kept forgetting that he was filming a family movie during his character's on-screen outbursts. So director Chris Columbus advised him to say fridge instead of the F word. A lot of Pesci's unintelligible painted mutterings were his way of avoiding cursing. (laughs) And with that, we have to move on to Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. One year after Kevin McAllister was left home alone and had to defeat a pair of bumbling burglars, he accidentally finds himself stranded in New York City, and the same criminals are not far behind. Once again, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York is directed by Chris Columbus, written by John Hughes. It stars Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, Catherine O'Hara, and now Tim Curry as the concierge. If you thought childhood wish fulfillment was paramount in the first movie, I gotta tell you, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York is the ultimate dream come true. This movie is the classic case of here we go again and bigger is better. Following the smash success of the first film, it became increasingly apparent that this was a franchise that Fox wanted to milk for all it's worth. And surprisingly, Chris Columbus and John Hughes agreed. They agreed to come back for the sequel. Now, Home Alone 2 puts us in Kevin McAllister's shoes once again, only this time, we're going on vacation with him. The fish-out-of-water comedy presents a lot of unique opportunities to take the story of the first film and enlarge it to a bigger scale. I remember Home Alone 2 was the one that I primarily watched the most because it made me feel that childhood sense of wonder. I wanted to go to New York City. I wanted to see the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, and I wanted to visit a toy store like Duncan's Toy Chest. Like the movie Blank Check, this is a movie about a kid being a kid with an unlimited supply of cash to indulge in and no parent to tell him to stop. My worry headed into this rewatch was that I wasn't going to feel the same way about this movie that I do now for Home Alone 1. I think lightning is really hard to strike twice in the same location, and this movie had really big shoes to fill. Now a lot of mistakes that sequels make is to go to the well of ideas. Back to the Future did it with part 2. They actually replayed a lot of the first movie and superimposed new footage onto it altogether in the old one. It was quite brilliant, but also... It made the second half of Back to the Future Part 2 feel quite repetitive. Now, unfortunately for me, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York follows that same suit. I think this movie is very easy to watch. It's fun. It still has that same wish fulfillment nature about it that makes the movie easy to recommend. But on a fundamental level, I think it's kind of a dud. I think John Hughes did his best to differentiate Home Alone 2 from the first film by changing the locations and the scenarios but it's still, at its core, just the first movie remade. There are a lot of story beats that get repeated in this film. Some of the things that don't sit well with me this time around are the obvious character swapping. Instead of having Marley, the delusioned lonely man for the first film, seeking forgiveness from his son and his past misdoings, they brought in Pigeon Lady, played by Brenda Fricker from Angels in the Outfield. She was Maggie. The Pigeon Lady is so vastly undercooked as a character. She serves almost nearly no narrative purpose to the story, outside the fact that Kevin gives her a turtle dove at the end of the movie. Her backstory about not wanting to love someone doesn't really fit the theme of this movie this time around, whereas Marley's tie-in to forgiveness is threaded throughout the DNA of the first film. I don't think it's very good, and it certainly doesn't play into the McAllister dynamic this time around. Missing that key element in this movie is why it doesn't feel like it has as much heart as the previous film. Perhaps if her side of the story was more about selflessness, then maybe it would have a poignant flourish, since Kevin becomes selfless towards the end of the movie. But I just don't get it out of Pigeon Lady. 
She's just kind of an avatar of what we got in the first film out of Marley. Also, the family dynamic this time around is far more mean-spirited. Even after everything they went through in the first film, Buzz and Uncle Frank in particular seem to have a vengeful vendetta against Kevin for some reason. Buzz's prank at the Christmas recital is so obnoxiously out of pocket that a simple I'm sorry wouldn't cut it in any household. He literally embarrasses Kevin and the entire family by making the spectacle all about Kevin and himself. Frank makes this worse by enabling him, because he enables Buzz to act this way, calling the stunt hilarious, while also chastising Kevin for trying to ruin their trip to Florida. I actually have to applaud Kevin here for having the gall to talk back to his uncle. I like that whole, sorry to ruin your vacation, Mr. Cheapskate. (laughs) Another reason why Macaulay Culkin's the goat. (laughs) But I feel like outside of Kevin and Kate, none of the other characters learned a damn thing from the first film. They're so mean to Kevin that it never really comes back around to being endearing. Perhaps Kevin was right in the first movie. Maybe he is surrounded by assholes and is better living off alone. (laughs) The revision of the McAllisters makes this movie a bit tougher to watch than the first movie, only because they should have known better. I'm not saying they can't have character arcs of their own, but Hughes was kind of boxed in with what he can do to make Kevin feel happy while segregated from them. Once again, hearkening to the fact that recopying the formula may have hurt this movie for me. Despite some of the narrative choices they made to the family, I do like what Hughes did otherwise with Kevin, Kate, Harry, and Marv this time around, and especially with the concierge at the hotel. (laughs) As for the wet bandits, who are now known as the Sticky Bandits, Harry and Marv break out of prison and land in New York, where they have an opportunity to start anew. They set their sights immediately on Duncan's toy chest for Christmas Eve, and plan to rob from a donation chest that sits behind the register. Much like the plot and setting, Marvin Harry's Sticky Bandits heist is much bigger and it's much more devious this time around, ultimately leading to a bigger showdown against Kevin at the apex of the film. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. In Home Alone 1, the standout performer for me was Joe Pesci. In Home Alone 2, That prestigious prize goes to Tim Curry as Mr. Hector, the concierge. Tim Curry serves as the third antagonist of the movie. As a hotel clerk hot on the tail of Kevin's credit card fraud, Curry is so sinister and brilliant in this role. The man knows how to chew the scenery out of a scene. His evil smile, his devilish laugh, and the way that he hilariously holds back tears after being smacked by Kate makes Mr. Hector a welcome addition to the cast of the film. The scenes where he has Cedric, played by Rob Schneider, follow Kevin are quietly some of my favorite sequences in the movie. They aren't slapstick funny, but they just work. Whether it's Kevin tipping Cedric with gum, or Mr. Hector walking in on Kevin's fake dad showering, these moments stand out to me comedically. They're really funny. Were it not for this added extra antagonist, I don't think there would have been a natural way to force Kevin to confront the Sticky Bandits. He would have just sat in the hotel room the whole, the whole time and waited for his family. So I have to give Hughes credit there for adding some compelling villains on top of the two we already had from the first movie. And it all comes to a head when Kevin uses angels with even filthier souls to ambush and trick the entire hotel staff. As another callback to the original film, this bit was used twice in Home Alone, once when the wet bandits were casing the McAllister home, and the second came when Kevin was getting payback on the pizza delivery guy. This third usage mostly works because of Tim Curry and the hotel staff's reaction to it. It's quite hilarious, from them figuring out that Hector was making out with Cliff to them having a Tommy gun shot at them. It's really funny, and it's a bigger, better way of doing the shtick from the first movie. Getting Kevin to confront the bandits is one thing, but they had to come up with a creative way to get Kevin in a situation where he can trap them like before and make it truly home alone. This decision was to give Kevin a home under renovation as basically a sandbox for his creativity. Here, he can do more with the traps than he did in the first movie. This is the aspect of the film where it sort of kind of goes off the rails from a critical perspective. 
Kevin is given less than a night to prepare all of these traps in a home that he has no layout of, in a city where he can run into trouble at any step. You really need to suspend logic for this film this time around compared to the first one. The last movie was more of a home invasion film. This one is more of a home offensive film. He's using the house as a tool of torment to capture the bandits rather than the bandits breaking into the house to capture him. But that doesn't really detract from my enjoyment. The more stunts and traps, the better. And this movie does not fall short in that department. As I did with the previous Home Alone, here are the three top traps for Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. At number three, which is deemed as the most fatal trap in the entire series, is the bricks. The bricks is an absolutely insane trap. Kevin baits Marv and Harry to his uncle's home, where he gets to the roof and he begins chucking bricks at the two from the top of the house. Marv gets the worst out of this interaction, taking a total of four bricks to the face and forehead. And I have to give a shout out to Kevin's arm accuracy. Dude was dotting those bricks at Marv like Joe Burrow to Jamar Chase. He was deadly accurate. <laughs> at number two, I have the electric sink. The electric sink is one of the funniest moments in the movie for me. After Marv takes a tumble into a shelf of paint cans, he decides to wash off his face and hands. Little did he know that Kevin rigged the basement sink to be an electric conduit to a power generator. If the shock weren't enough, Kevin cranks it high enough so that Marv becomes a skeleton. <laughs> At this point, the movie just becomes a cartoon. It says, fuck it, this is a cartoon. <laughs> and this gag was peak cartoonish comedy. I also like Mars' pathetic little crawl when he walks away from the accident. It was kind of the cherry on top. And the number one trap of Home Alone 2 is the paint staircase again. This movie has a lot of callbacks and repetitions from the first movie. And this trap may be a repeat, but what I love about it this time is that it subverts the expectations for the audience. It tells us that the bandits have learned their lesson. They avoid the paint cans because they know what got them last year. And so they think that they're smarter. They think they have the advantage. And little did they know, once the second can flies by them, they think they're in the clear to walk up the staircase. But lo and behold, a metal bar comes swinging down, smacking both of them in the face, and they go flying into a pit. It is hilarious. And sometimes they say comedy is better in thirds. This was one of those uh, scenes where the comedy was better in a third. I like this trap a lot just because it's simple and it calls back to the original without trying to one-up itself. It's just really good, really funny. The resolution of the first movie kind of tugged at your heartstrings because it perfectly ties together with all of its themes and life lessons. With Home Alone 2, there are some sweet moments. I enjoyed the letter to Mr. Duncan after the apprehension of the Sticky Bandits. Kevin and Mr. Duncan had more chemistry on screen than he had with the Pigeon Lady, for example. Speaking of which, I don't find the Turtle Dove exchange to be as special as Kevin reuniting Marley and his son. Home Alone 2, it's another easy recommendation for the holiday season. It's a light, fluffy, and worthy sequel to Home Alone, despite it never reaching the heartfelt spirit of the first one. I would have to give Lost in New York 3 out of 5. Good movie but not better than the original. Let's now shift focus to some filmmaking factoids for Home Alone 2. One of the biggest effects of making a film sequel is that the actors will gain popularity and will demand more money in follow-up films and merchandise. As a result, Macaulay Culkin was paid $4.5 million to star in this movie, which is the biggest salary ever for an 11-year-old actor at the time of the filming of this movie. The kid had it made. <laughs> And you guys who have listened to the podcast since its inception know I'm a sucker for practical filmmaking, and this one was particularly awesome. <laughs> the pigeon attack sequence was filmed on March 25th, 1992, and according to Joe Pesci, the crew covered him and Daniel Stern with real bird seed and about 300 pigeons. <laughs> that had to be terrifying. <laughs> this one's kind of neat. All of the children who appeared in the Toy Story scene were allowed to take their favorite toy home as part of their salary. 
Even though it didn't work and was created specifically for the movie as a prop, Macaulay Culkin was allowed to keep the original Talkboy prop. Let's take a minute to appreciate the Talkboy, because uh, I haven't harked on it yet. What a brilliant spot of marketing with that toy in this film. Every kid in the 90s wanted one of those bad boys. It records your voice, it modulates it, you could speed up your voice, slow it down, you could play it back. It was extremely cool. So much so that Mattel ended up manufacturing a sequel to the Talk Boy, which was painted pink and purple, and they called it the Talk Girl, specifically designed for little girls. And I think it's pretty sick that Macaulay Culkin got to keep the original prop. <laughs> This factoid leans into my main criticism with this movie. The separation of Kevin and Kate may be great, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't feel as dire and urgent as it did in the first movie. Catherine O'Hara agrees with me. In an interview, Catherine O'Hara said that she was worried her character wasn't trying hard enough to find Kevin. Scenes were added to show her concern. Now just imagine how much less tense this movie would have been had they not added additional scenes on Catherine O'Hara's behest. That's something to think about, and I'm glad they added it. And just a little bit of effort on screen goes a long way into showing how good of a mom Kate McAllister is despite her reputation. <laughs> now the final factoid for Home Alone 2 Lost in New York is about living the wish fulfillment fantasy of this movie. The world famous Plaza Hotel used for the celebrity Ding Dang Dong, <laughs> was actually used to offer the Home Alone experience around Christmas. The real hotel, where guests who paid for the Home Alone experience could stay in a room similar to the room that Kevin stayed in, receive Home Alone gifts included in the movies, and take a limousine to see some of the famous filming locations from the movie, including the store upon which Duncan's toy chest was based off of. Really cool. I don't know how long that experience was going along, but that was really sweet. I would have paid to have done that. Now we have come to the end of Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and now have one final film to cover for the week. But before we get to Home Alone 3, let me give you this week's Season of Giveaways key phrase. If you wish to enter this week's giveaway, be sure to share the episode with the phrase, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. Make sure to tag the show using at PCWithGill on X, Instagram, or both. As we turn the page on Macaulay Culkin's saga of Home Alone films, we turn our focus to the terrorist spy game that is Home Alone 3. There's a really big reason why I didn't just stop after Home Alone 2 when I conceptualized this episode. The common perception is that the series didn't need to continue without Macaulay Culkin. Everything after Home Alone 2 is just straight-to-home video garbage. I'm more privy to agree with that. There is a certain charm with the cast of the first two movies that you don't get with the, any of the subsequent sequels, starting with Home Alone 3. The studio clearly had a smaller budget, a new director, and a completely different attitude entirely. For that reason, this movie has only been seen by a minor number of audiences, and believe it or not, it actually has a following. There are people who swear that this is a worthy effort to keep the Home Alone franchise alive, and I'm going to be honest, Home Alone 3 was kind of a guilty pleasure of mine growing up. I knew it wasn't as good as the first two, but I still found it somewhat relatable. It tried to do something new, and it changed up the Home Alone plot formula a bit. It's been a couple years since I've watched this one, so my curiosity was really piqued going into this revisit. I wanted to ask myself, does Home Alone 3 deserve the hate it receives, or is it justifiably panned? Let's find out. Alex Pruitt is an 8-year-old boy living in Chicago who must fend off international spies who seek a top-secret computer chip in his toy car. Home Alone 3 is directed by Raja Gosnell, who is known for directing Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed, and Never Been Kissed. It is written, surprisingly, by John Hughes for a third time, and it stars Alex D. Linz as Alex Pruitt, Oleg Krupa as Peter, Rhea Kilstedt as Alice, Lenny Von Dellen, I think I got his name right, as Jernigan, David Thornton as Mr. Unger, 
and Scarlett Johansson as Molly Pruitt. <laughs> yeah, this isn't a good movie, guys. I'm going to keep it pretty short and sweet on this one since we're also running out of time. Home Alone 3 really swings for the fences when it comes to its ambition. Alex is left home alone for the week when he becomes ill with the chicken pox. The plot alone seems extremely relatable and down to earth, but that's not the case. They really went off the deep end with this one. In this film, Alex is not just stopping burglars from ruining his Christmas. He's foiling an international terrorist plot between the South Korean government and the Russians. What the fuck? (laughs) Oh, man. The film begins with these terrorists hiding a highly coveted and dangerous microchip inside of an RC car to avoid the scans at the airport terminal. The chip contains military secrets to nuclear weapons and in the wrong hands can bring about a possible world war. You heard me right. Home Alone 3 deals with the aversion of a nuclear world war and communist espionage. This is bad shit, dude. (laughs) Now, I bounce back and forth between hating this idea and really liking it for its ambition. On one hand, it's incredibly stupid that John Hughes went this route after the Kevin McAllister movies. But on the other hand, if you're going to go big, you may as well go nuclear with it. (laughs) The RC car, through an airport terminal miscue, managed to find its way into the hands of our new protagonist, Alex Pruitt. I cannot imagine the amount of pressure that Alex Lentz had to go through to fill the shoes left by Macaulay Culkin as the face of Home Alone. Alex isn't a bad protagonist. In fact, I would say that he has some decent acting chops. He still has those Kevin qualities to him that are necessary to make the role work. He shows a curiosity to build and tweak things. He doesn't have a strong relationship with his older brother and sister. And he mostly tries his hardest to do good by his mom and crotchety neighbor Mrs. Hess. His earnestness makes him a bit too sweet for me, however, compared to Kevin McAllister. The reason why audiences love Macaulay Culkin so much is because of his quick wit and the edge that he brought to Kevin McAllister. He was a troublemaker, and he was an asshole, but he was also a very cute, endearing one. He had a character arc to go through. Alex doesn't really have any of that. He's just a good kid through and through. He doesn't really learn his lessons. His only character flaw is that he calls the police a couple times. That's not really a character flaw. He's legitimately just looking out for the neighborhood. So he doesn't have a really big motivation to overcome in this film. I did mention that his family members don't have a good relationship with him either, and they don't, but they aren't as antagonistic as Buzz is to Kevin in the originals. Buzz was a real asshole, and his actions are a reason why Kevin had to have an edge to him. There's some logic in the way that they wrote Buzz and Kevin to reflect one another and to strengthen Kevin as a character, but... Alex's brother doesn't really have that. He's kind of a nothing character. In fact, I don't even remember his name, and I just watched the movie 40 minutes ago. (laughs) I have it written down on my notebook, but I don't care to search through it right now. (laughs) Besides Kevin McAllister, who else do you think about when it comes to Home Alone? That's right. You think about the wet, sticky bandits. A movie is only as good as its villains. Home Alone 3 has four antagonists. Peter, Alice, Jernigan, and Unger. And I think less is better. Having this many villains, it's hard to really keep track of the personalities. They all kind of blend into one another. They're all just so forgettable. You only remember Alice because she's the first female Home Alone invader. And you only remember Unger because he has long hair, a ponytail, and he has a sarcastic humor about him. These aren't comedic or high-profile actors. And I think the only person who has an accomplished career is Oleg Krupa who has a minor, non-speaking role in X-Men First Class. He plays a Russian military general in the final scene of that film. In fact, I just had to cut three minutes out of the episode because I couldn't remember this guy's name. (laughs) But you guys won't hear that. There's a bizarre juxtaposition of this movie. On one hand, they're selling a serious story about a terrorist organization. And on the other hand, it's a family-style slapstick comedy. This juxtaposition will give you whiplash. But the tonal whiplash isn't the worst thing about Home Alone 3. No, no, no. 
the most egregious error this film makes is that it is not a Christmas movie. I kid you not. This movie may have the appearance of a Christmas movie because there are Christmas lights and snow everywhere, but the film actually takes place on January 8th, and they say that in the opening scene of the film. This does not take place in Christmas time, so it's not a Christmas movie. It's a winter movie. How the hell do you make a Home Alone film that doesn't take place during Christmas? This is the holiday franchise, and I was shocked to discover that. I swear to God, I thought that there was a Christmas scene in the movie, but I guess there isn't. This gave me a serious case of the Mandela effect when I looked back on it. I was also kind of disappointed to learn that the film was in fact scored by John Williams. John Williams, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, was nominated for an Academy Award for his work in the first Home Alone film. But he also worked on this one. And not only is the soundtrack of this movie highly forgettable, but it mixes the classic Home Alone theme in such a meaningless way that you just don't give a shit about it. It's one of the worst pieces of score that John Williams has ever worked on, and I am so disappointed by it. Getting back to the story, Alex gets the chicken pox and must be left alone during the workdays because his father goes out of town and his mother is a busybody and can't get out of work. The thing I loved about the original Home Alone films is the sense of homesickness and long-distance yearning. Since the family isn't away in this movie, there's no separation anxiety or any real conflict for Alex and his family to overcome. And because of that, this movie feels very hollow and soulless. At any moment, he could call up his sister. At any moment, he could call up his mom. So the tension gets cut in half just because of that. On top of that, Alex doesn't come in contact with the burglars until approximately an hour into the film. He spies on the neighborhood and plays Boy Who Cried Wolf a couple times, which then puts the Pruitt house on the terrorist radar. But I found the comedy of this movie to be extremely juvenile, and that which you'd see in a multi-cam sitcom. There's a lot of fart jokes and toilet humor, there's animal humor... And they also play a lot of cartoon sound effects in the middle of this. There's a scene where they get hit by a 2x4, and you could hear a coconut, one of those Hanna-Barbera sound effects that you hear in the Flintstones. They do that a lot, and I swear there was none of that in the original two Home Alone films. Most of it is just base-level toilet and animal humor. That's all it is. Honestly... This is a very boring movie up until the actual break-in. I found little to no joy in the build-up to the climax of the film. And at the end of the day, I was asking myself, what is the messaging behind this movie? It's certainly not about keeping your family close to your heart, or forgiveness, or becoming selfless. It's really about nothing of sentiment. It's just a home invasion movie. That's all it is. There's nothing to take away from it. But it isn't all bad. There are some notable sequences to take fun in. The first RC car pursuit actually has a little bit of action and comedy in there. There's sadly not enough of this in the entire movie to make it commendable. You can probably enjoy this movie more if you just watch the heist scene on YouTube and call it a day. Just skip all the boring other parts because this movie doesn't have much character development outside of the final heist. So as I'm getting a little bit more restless in the night now, as you can hear from my voice, I think it's time that we talk about the traps in this movie. The film tries to play on the hits by calling back to Marv's electrical shock and dropping weights onto the intruders. The pickings are so slim in this movie that there are really only two traps that I enjoyed. The first trap I want to highlight is the Mega Bloks roller skates. When Unger finally enters the house, he overlooks two large Mega Bloks wagons filled with a massive amount of industrial grade glue. He places one foot after another into the wagons and then has to skate his way down the basement. What follows is actually a pretty hilariously stupid sequence where he flips down the staircase, bangs against a washing machine, his fingers get snapped by a mousetrap, and then he shoots a sewage pipe above him. The cartoon sound effects actually made this a little bit more hilarious to me, but I did like this trap. I think it's pretty funny and kind of in the spirit of the old films. And then the one I do want to talk about. This is the best one in the entire film. It's the pool switcheroo. Jernigan and Unger's story ends when they are apprehended in the Pruitt's pool. 
Alex manages to get the two to jump from the second story of the house onto a trampoline that he positioned right above his pool. He brilliantly carved out the outline of the pool to the right of the trampoline in order to trick them into thinking that they're jumping onto stable ground. But instead, they punch through the trampoline and into the pool and they end up getting frozen for the police to capture them. It's pretty clever and really funny. Of course, if you don't know where I'm going with this review, I think Home Alone 3 deserves to be regarded negatively. It has a couple chuckle moments, no heart, and has an uphill battle of trying to live up to Home Alone 1 and 2's massive reputation. Despite the catchy, this is my town, closing credits, I think Home Alone 3 deserves 2 out of 5 stars. Let me give you a couple quick filmmaking factoids and we'll wrap up this episode. Macaulay Culkin smelled blood in the water for this role. Macaulay Culkin refused to do this film simply because he'd grown tired of the role and felt that there was nothing else he could have done with it. Good for him, he dodged a bullet. (laughs) This next one is actually kind of shocking. A rare positive review came from Chicago film critic Roger Ebert, who called it the best of all the Home Alone films and that it was far better than the first one. It was also the only Home Alone movie he liked, since he gave the first two negative reviews. Gene Siskel, his television partner, nearly fell out of his chair in disbelief at this remark. Ebert's review went on to appear on the front cover of the VHS and DVD release of Home Alone 3. (laughs) Wow. And he had to take that to his grave. And our final filmmaking factoid of the day comes from John Hughes himself. When Macaulay Culkin declined to reprise his role as Kevin for the third outing, John Hughes briefly considered writing the screenplay with Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern reprising their roles as the burglars Harry and Marv, respectively, who would, by accident, target Kevin's cousin Fuller, who is Macaulay Culkin's real-life brother Kieran Culkin. And Fuller would become the main character with Gary Bamman and Terry Snell reprising their roles as Uncle Frank and Aunt Leslie, respectively, who go on vacation themselves this time, leaving Fuller home alone. The idea was scrapped as Pesci and Stern refused to reprise their roles and wanted to pursue other projects, and Kieran felt he couldn't follow in his brother's footsteps as the lead. Hughes then wrote an entirely different screenplay with no characters from the first two films. I really kind of wonder how that movie would have been like if all these three main characters agreed to do it. I'm almost certain that it would have followed the Home Alone 1 and 2 formula. But who knows? We'll never see it. So that is it, my friends. We have made it through this long recap of the Home Alone theatrical trilogy. Which of the three is your favorite? And do you agree with my scores? Let me know and enter our giveaway on social media. On X and Instagram, search PC with Gil and drop a follow. I will return next week with the theatrical new release, Wonka. Will it live up to Gene Wilder's legend? We will find out. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. And as always, go catch a movie.